Well, let me start with a question. I wonder what pictures, what words, what ideas come to mind when you think of Christian art. What do you think of when you think of Christian art? I was going to leave that rhetorical, but now I'm up here and looking at you. I might actually throw it, throw it out very quickly. So what, what, what ideas come to mind when you think of Christian art? Perhaps the, the crucifix that's behind you. Oh, right. The, the crucifix right behind us here. Yeah. Something of a, a Christian theme, a clear Christian image. This is Christ on a cross. Pretty Christian. Yeah, great. Thanks. The Last Supper. Someone shouted out. Yeah, the uh, Michelangelo. Painting. Wonderful. Yep. Other thoughts? Stained glass windows. Great. Stained glass windows. There's a wonderful modern contemporary stained glass window in in Frankfurt by the artist Gerhard Richter. Beautiful abstract thing. These are all very positive things. Uh, Anyone think of anything that's a bit negative? Oh, good. (laughs) Let me try and show you some negative stuff. (laughs) Uh, no good, I mean our thoughts should go immediately to really great works of art through the years, such as Rembrandt's Crucifixion series. And here we see Rembrandt himself in the centre of the painting, uh, nailing in the nails to the feet of Christ. A bit like Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ, allegedly. He wanted his own hands to be visible in the painting, as if to say, I am responsible, I am responsible for this crucifixion as well. This was Rembrandt. Uh, we might think about artists like Hannah the Elder, who is a, a practicing painter during the time of the Reformation. In fact, he got his mate Martin Luther to paint an altarpiece for Luther's church in Wittenberg, uh, the church in Wittenberg. And it's a wonderful visual explanation of some Reformed theology. If, if you have a look at the bottom panel, you might be able to see through the squiggles and pixelation. On the right-hand side, there's a preacher. And on the left-hand side, there's a congregation. You can't quite see it from there, but the congregation all have really big ears. Why do they have big ears? They've got big ears because they're hearing. They can hear what the preacher's saying. And they can hear what the preacher's saying because he's preaching to them in a language they understand. And what's he preaching? He's preaching Christ crucified. Christ is in the centre panel at that. It's a really interesting piece of biblical theology. It shows the preacher preaching Christ crucified to people who can listen and hear in their own language. It's a really wonderful work of art. Sometimes when we think of Christian art, we think about stuff, to be honest, that's a little bit cheesy or naff or a bit, the word is kitsch. Um, This is a painting by a, a contemporary artist called Thomas Kincaid, who's an evangelical Christian based in America. Kincaid describes himself as the painter of light. Uh, Now Rembrandt said that, Constable said that, Turner said that. That's a pretty big lineage in history to go with. Um, But for Kincaid, light is reduced to a kind of soppy, sentimental, sweet uh, sunset. Uh, He reduces the hope, the light of the true gospel to something sweet and sentimental. And then he writes Bible verses in the bottom right-hand corner, just so we make sure it's Christian. That's Thomas Kincaid. Maybe you think about images like this, uh, images from a Catholic tradition, the Sacred Heart Christ. This is a little hologram that was given to me when I was a student. You turn it one way, and Christ has a small heart. You turn it the other way, and Christ has a big heart. You flick it backwards and forwards, and Christ's heart beats for you. (laughs) 
it's a, it's a pretty shocking piece of art, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. Christian art. In some ways, I think it's a bit of an unfair thing to, uh, to say Christian art because the question presupposes that actually there is such a thing as Christian art. And of course there is no such thing as Christian art. Just as there's no such thing as Christian medicine or Christian plumbing or Christian food. There might be Christians who are uh, doctors and who'd work with something of a Christian ethos. We, we might find Christian plumbers who are working through a worldview in a biblical sense for, for their work. Or even a chef who wants to prepare food in a way that he believes pleases the Lord. But food, plumbing, medicine, art by themselves can neither be Christian nor non-Christian because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There's nothing outside of the lordship of Christ. Everything belongs to him. And God is keenly interested in every area of his creation. Not just the arts, but also our own lives and our work and our leisure time. When I was a wee boy, my mum used to sew name tags into everything that I owned. It used to be in the back of my shirt and in the blazer. If you've had a mum, and I presume you've all had a mum, she probably did something like that as well. And mine said, Alistair Gordon, this is his property. <laughs> I think I've still got a pair of football socks with it on, actually. Um, it's as though the Lord has sewn a name tag on everything within creation that says, the Lord's, this is his property. Everything belongs to the Lord. Actually, to be a little bit more accurate than that, everything belongs to Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Everything belongs to Jesus. So there's no such thing as the Christian art and the non-Christian art. Christians can make the most hideous works of art that give no glory at all to him and would disbelieve him. Just as non-Christians would make the most wonderful works of art that give great pleasure to the Lord. There's no such thing as Christian art, but we can say there is such a thing as an approach to making art that is Christian. Or a way of engaging with art that gives glory to God. And by default, a way of engaging with art and making art that doesn't give glory to God and displeases him. That moves towards sin and idolatry. And my hope tonight is to try and work through what those issues actually are. What is the kind of art that pleases the Lord? And what is the kind of art that displeases him? And how do you know it when you see it? What do you do about that yourself? That's the challenge. So the first point, there are no subjects that are outside of the lordship of Christ. The artist is free to make work on any subject within the Lord's creation. Because, as Paul says, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Everything God created is good. 
that the subjects that Christians can make art about are as rainbow rich as the creation itself. So some will take on really profound themes of life, the universe, everything. Take on great existential questions such as the artist Paul Gauguin whose paintings in the latter part of his life took on great heavy titles such as this one, What Are We? Where Are We Going? Or perhaps the contemporary artist Miroslav Bilka whose installation at the Tate Modern just very recently this year Uh, is an epic examination of some very dark and difficult questions in life. The title of this work is How It Is. As you walk into this giant box, the darkness is sucked out of existence and you're engulfed entirely by the lack of light until you turn around and then face the light. Um, For those who might know a little bit about Greek philosophy, it's something of Plato turning around and seeing the light. Uh, Deep, heavy, but important questions. Other artists will tell stories that are really simple. They'll tell stories as simple as, look at that fading flower. Or, have you noticed how red the clouds are when the sun sets? This is a recent painting by David Hockney. And on one hand, it's a very simple study of the Yorkshire Dales. But on the other hand, if you look at it a little bit further, it's something of a visual, poetic essay on the hidden treasures of colour. It's really quite a profound work of art. Now, now all of these painters' subjects are valuable within God's kingdom because they all fall within the creation itself. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But that's not to say that the artist can just kind of loll around a little bit and do whatever he wants. Again, that's not to say that all art gives pleasure to God. Because the artist is to be responsible within creation uh, and not to take for granted the creation itself and the work that he or she is given to do. Our man Paul carries on writing to the church in Colossae, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart because you're working for the Lord. And not just for men. So be that in your job in the city as an accountant. Be that preparing your class as a teacher. Be that tending to the garden. Writing a sermon. Preparing the Bible study for a Tuesday night. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Why? Because work belongs to the Lord. You're working for him. Not just for your boss. Not just for your client. You're working for the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If Paul's instruction is sound, and we have to assume it is, then that means there's a way of doing everything that would be pleasing to the Lord. It's kind of a biblical theology for everything, just as there's a way of doing anything that displeases him. Well, in years gone by, Christians have taken this mantra really seriously and have worked with all their hearts in all areas of society. The church has played a a critical leading role in creating and commissioning truly excellent works of art that have not just given great glory to God, but also become part of our own cultural heritage. So imagine, if you will, any work of art that was being made before 250 years ago. 
any work of art that you think is good that was created more than 250 years ago. The chances are you're thinking of a work of art that was either commissioned by the church or that was rendered by a devout Christian believer. We could think about great works of music by Mendelssohn, Handel, Bach, or Christians. Great painters such as Caravaggio, Rembrandt, Michelangelo, all commissioned by the church. The architect Christopher Wren, the painter Nicholas Poussin, the writer John Bunyan, all great artists in their time. Some of them, for sure, pretty mixed up and pretty broken. Some of them unsure of where they stood before the Lord. But all of them recorded in some way, trying to make work that would be pleasing to God. I think the question for us today is that where are the great artists of faith today? Where are the artists who influence the next 250 years? And if they don't come from the church, then where are they going to come from? We've said the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And the psalmist goes on to say, he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The language the psalmist uses here is the unmistakable language of creation. This is the creation story. And in Genesis 1, we read about how God created our reality through a division of water. Water above in the heavens and water below in the earth. It's a theme that the artist Caspar David Friedrich, the 19th century German painter, takes in his painting, The Wanderer. In The Wanderer, we see a lonely figure who's pondering his place in the creation as he looks out before him and he sees water both above, represented by the clouds in the sky, and water below, represented by the mist and the valleys. It's a creation-inspired painting. And if we're trying to piece together something of a biblical worldview for the arts, then really there's only one place that we can start, and that is with the creation story. In fact, more than that, we actually need to start with the creator, with our God, who's the first creative being, the author and inventor of all creativity, and who worked with all his heart for the glory of himself. All art and creativity is born out of the character of God. So when we investigate the way that God creates, we see something of how we should create and how something of the way that the arts should function today. So we're going to read something from the Genesis story. We're going to read Genesis 1, 1 to 10. And I want you to try, if you can, to visualize as God creates Um, You might want to ask, what is God's creative method? What is his creative style? If you were to write an artistic review of the creation, what kind of stuff would you talk about? And I've asked Naomi if she'd help me with this reading, so thanks, Naomi. Let there be light! And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, 
Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it is so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw it as good. Thanks, Neil. First of all, it's important to recognise that when we read the Genesis story, okay, we're not reading a scientific textbook. So the whens and the hows of the story just somehow seem less important to the writer than the greater questions of why and what. Why did God create? What was his intention for the creation? The first thing we read in the Bible are the words, in the beginning, God created. As an artist, as a painter, I love these words. It tells me how important creativity is to our God. It's the very first thing he chooses to record about himself in his eternal word. It's the first thing we learn about his character. That God is a creative God. It must be fairly important. So go and be creative. Be creative for the glory of God. Creativity is good. But more than that, since we are made in the image of God, we can say that being creative is quite simply part of what it means to be a human being. Just as God is a relational being and we are relational, just as God is a spiritual being and we are a spirit, just as God is a moral being and we choose the difference between right and wrong, as God is creative, so are we. So creativity isn't just a gift from God. But we could say that creativity is actually a mandate. It is part of who we are. We are human. We are creative. No more justification required. Later on in the Genesis story, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, God created them. So since we're made in the image of God, we just are creative. That's the first thing. Second to that, we can see that God creates in a way that's quite different from the way that we do. When we create, we create with our hands. But when God creates, he creates by his word. God said, let there be light. And there was light. I've been a painter for probably about 30 years. And I can't yet say, let there be a landscape painting. And a wonderful work of painting just appear in the studio. I just can't do that, but God can. So in that sense, we could say that God is an authentic creator, a true creator. He creates something from nothing at all. In contrast, we are mere imitators of God. We are mere recreators. We create from the stuff that God has first given us. Third, we could say that God creates with order and structure and harmony. So God begins with broad brushstrokes and works towards detail and complexity. When he creates, he does it with symmetry and with order. Um, There's symmetry in Genesis 1. When we look at everything created in days 1 to 3, it somehow mirrors what's created in days 4 to 6. As we're made in the image of God, we're designed to be creative in this way. So a painter begins with the primary colours of red, blue and yellow And he divides the primary colours to make more complex hues of green, orange and purple. As he continues to divide the colours, he then sets to work on the canvas, separating that into division and subdivision to line, harmony and tone. As he goes on, 
making his creation more complex and more rich and more detailed. He begins to make something that is yet to appear within the creation, something new, just as God did. The French post-impressionist painter Paul Cézanne was committed to the idea that there's an order in the creation, that it can be reflected within art. So he studied the landscape, taking hours and hours simply to look at what he saw and making shapes and structure from the creation. We see in his art, Cézanne was really the king of composition and he's commonly heralded as the founder of modern art. If it wasn't for Cézanne's studies, we wouldn't have had the early tree studies of Pierre Mondrian, who adopted Cézanne's policy of studying the landscape, looking for structure, harmony and order. Without the early Monet paintings, we wouldn't have later Monet paintings, where he reduces the landscape to the simple structural devices of horizontal and vertical and the primary colours. Without Mondrian, we wouldn't have had Picasso, who was deeply influenced by what Monet and Mondrian was doing rather. Without Picasso, we wouldn't have had George Braque. Without George Braque, we wouldn't have Marshall Duchamp, Roy Lichtenstein, Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol. Without Andy Warhol and Duchamp, we wouldn't have Damien Hirst, Sadie Emin, and Anthony Gormley. If you know their work, you might think good riddance. <laughs> but the lineage and the history of 20th century art is fundamentally, it's founded on the principle that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it that there is structure, that there's harmony, that there's order that points towards a creator. Um, I find it impossible for any serious artist, any serious artist or anyone at all interested in the legacy of art history not to take an interest in Christian belief. Because without Christian belief, we have to rewrite 20th century art. So God is the first creator and the greatest creator The creation itself sings out of his goodness. The psalmist puts it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. And the wonder of it all is that God chooses to make us creative in his image. The first human being is Adam. And what's Adam instructed to do? He's put to work in the Garden of Eden. To work it and to take care of it. Uh, These verses are sometimes referred to as the creation mandate. Um, To make music and song and ice cream. He's to work it and take care of it. Adam's role in the world is one of stewardship and dominion. He was put in charge, but through that responsibly to take care of the earth. Adam was instructed to name the animals. And he gives everything within creation with the animals a name. And in doing that demonstrates his dominion within the creation itself. He joins in the creating process with God. All the animals are named, but none of them are appropriate for him as a partner. So none of them would have made a good wife. The wildebeest, the flamingo, wouldn't have made appropriate wives for Adam. So Adam's put to sleep, and the Lord removes one of his ribs and sculpts the rib. And the next morning, Adam wakes up. And in front of Adam, by his side, as he wipes the sleep from his eyes, is a wonderful vision of beauty. The most beautiful creature he's ever seen. It's his wife, Eve. And what does he do? Well, the fella writes a bit of poetry. He writes, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. 
She was taken from man. She shall be called woman. It's lovely, isn't it? It's not a Shakespearean sonnet, for sure, but it's a lovely little poem. Uh, It's just very thoughtfully crafted and put together. See how the structure works, and without being too patronising, how the word for woman comes from the word for man, just as Eve had come from the DNA of Adam himself. And it works even better in the Hebrew. It's a very excellent poem. Um, Adam hasn't been asked to do this. He just does it because he is a human being and creative. Not that the poem isn't on some great theological theme. It doesn't describe the attributes of God. It's not a hymn. It's a very simple poem about his relationship with Eve, their status together alongside one another and their status within creation represented by their unity together. So gentlemen, write poetry for your wives. If you can't write poetry, just send a card. Uh, Be creative for your wife. It's a very good biblical thing to do. Okay, so we've said that not all art pleases the Lord. And of course art has been affected by the fall, just as everything within the creation. Uh, The writer of Romans puts it like this, and we'll read from about halfway down on the right, verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. How stupid can yet robbing away the glory from the creator, making art about stuff that just is nowhere near as great as God's. In Genesis 32, there's a very graphic demonstration of how God's people turn from worshipping God to bow down to a sculpture of a cow that is really crudely constructed in a hurry, very expensive, bankrupting the people. Here the artist Nicholas Poussin records the events in this very famous, very excellent painting. Like all creation, even the most beautiful of gifts, such as art, becomes corrupt and fallen. When we look at much art today, as we look through the lineage of art history, we see much art that displeases the Lord, much art that's turned from worshipping God and worshipped instead stuff made by God, stuff like money and sex and power and even the artist, him or herself. Like the golden calf, art has become, in some ways, an idol in its own right. It's really quite fascinating that the day that the news broke that the Lehman brothers had gone bust because of inappropriate, greedy embezzlement, on that exact same day, the artist Damien Hirst stole a statue of the golden calf at Sotheby's for £10.3 million. And the irony of that, don't you think? The irony of that. Well, thankfully, we know, we know that Christ is returning. And we know that he'll make everything new in his creation, including art. Idolatry will come to an end. Art in the new heaven and new earth will finally and fully express the full weight and glory of God in ways we can only begin to imagine, I think, now. And having spent much time talking about the creation story, having referred a little bit to the fall, I want us just to end now very briefly with a suggestion of what art of renewal, art of new creation and hope, might look like. Now, as we know, today is the 10-year anniversary of the attack on the Twin Towers in New York City. How do you make art in response to that? How do you make art that laments that 
but that sees something of hope even in the darkest of moments in our history. There have been many powerful tributes made by artists around the world, laments and tributes, um, but perhaps one of the most poignant works of art made in response to the Twin Towers is the um, construction of the new buildings by the architect Daniel Liebeskind, who won the commission to rebuild the World Trade Centre and a memorial that will lie right at the base of that. Liebeskind is an architect of Polish Jewish descent, so he's not a Christian. Um, he's made work, uh, he's made some wonderful buildings, including the, uh, the Berlin Jewish Holocaust Museum and the Centre Pompidou in Paris. And as a Jew, he has something of a sympathy for our belief in a hope for the future, a hope for a new creation, that death is not the end. In the centre of the five towers, there'll be a memorial to those who died. And the building's been especially designed so that on the 11th of September, every year, at the exact time that the second tower fell, light will flood down into the darkness. A tower, a column of light, will enter the memorial as a symbol, as a metaphor, that darkness won't win, that evil doesn't triumph, that light can penetrate the darkness. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here. This is a building. It won't tell you what you need to know in order to go to heaven, and it can't save your soul. It's a building. But perhaps it can communicate something of a hope that we would share ourselves as Christians, communicate something of good and hope for the future, something that points towards a recreation. Well, we're coming to the end of time here. I, I hope in some ways this has even demonstrated a little bit how God is for the arts, um, that they are his, that he can do whatever he wants with them. I hope you feel encouraged to be creative in whatever area of work you have yourself and to be creative at home and at leisure, uh, to see that creativity isn't just something that you squeeze out at the end of the day or if you're bored or there's nothing else to do or when you're knackered, but that creativity is just fundamental to our existence as human beings and a valuable human experience in itself. Um, it might be that you're not a Christian, but you wonder, um, well, what would it mean if I become a Christian? And how might that change the work that I'm involved in? Not in the arts, but what I do. Um, if that's the case, I'd very much love to chat to you, have a conversation about that, as I'm sure Andy would as well. But how do we apply any of this for all of us? Here's your application. Praise God for his creativity. And go and be creative yourself. That's it. Praise God for his creativity and go and be creative yourself. Be affirmed that God is for creativity, for your creative endeavours, but do it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for men. And please do pray for those of us who make art and who, and who want to influence the arts for the glory of God. Pray for us as well. Well, I'm going to pray. And we've run out of time a little bit, but I had said there would be room for questions. Um, and obviously there's a lot more to talk about, so you might have questions. But let me pray now, and then we'll have questions. Father in heaven, I, uh, I praise you and I worship you. And I thank you that you have created all things. And 
I pray that you might help us to take seriously our mandate to, to work well within your creation, to take care of it, to demonstrate your authority in our works, but also in the words that we say as we hope to share the gospel with people. And Father, would you protect us from making work that is idolatrous and show us what that might even be. And I pray these things for the great glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So any questions? If not, we'll go home and watch Strictly Come Dancing in there. Yeah, Nathan. For the recording, I'll, I'll just say that what about work like we have in the church here, the um, picture of Christ on the cross, and through history there's been much contention, of course, about uh, works of art in, in church. And when we read the second command, we read that we're not to make any work to bow down towards, don't make any graven image, an image of anything in the heavens above and the earth below or the waters beneath. On first reading, of course, we might misunderstand that to say don't make any art at all. Don't make any art at all. But then in Exodus 35, we read how in the tabernacle, God himself commissions artwork of cherubim and of almonds and of creatures that exist within the world. He has images graven in his own temple, in his tabernacle. So what do we make of that? Well, I think if we take our, as our definition of idolatry, anything that would rob away worship from God or anything that is inappropriate worship, other than worshipping the creator. Inside of that, we'd have to say that any work of art that becomes to us a god is idolatrous. We've got to get rid of it. So if we choose to worship this item of wood and paint sculpted on the wall, then let's take it down, for goodness sake. But if course, what we see is a representation of Christ on the cross, and it helps us worship Christ, then this is, in my view, this is a, a good thing. So I think we need to think some very difficult questions through about well, what is the function of the art? Not to put a kind of blanket um, generalisation over if it's got a picture of Jesus on it, it must be wrong. Or if it's got a picture of a daffodil on it, it must be okay. But to ask, well, what is the function of the art? What is it doing? What is it doing to our hearts as we, we worship him? Um, and then there are other questions of um, technical merit and uh, making work that is good. Does that help? Do you want to come back to me a bit on that? Or anyone else want to say any more on that? Okay. Cheers. Good question. Yeah, Ed. When Bob Dylan became a Christian very briefly, the music he produced was generally thought not to be as good. Yeah. Why do you think there was this sort of thing All right, I'm going to speculate, and you know I could talk for hours on this subject. Why aren't Christians making good art? And I think there's, and again for the recording, when Bob Dylan became a believer, the question was put that his work got a bit shoddy for a few years, and then he got back into it again. 
Uh, yeah, there are various things going on. Perhaps for Dylan, um, he might have got encouragement to make art that was evangelistic or felt a need to make art that was evangelistic. And out of that, that his real love for making music and other themes was somehow lost. And perhaps his work became a little too tight and less creative. Um, not to say work that is evangelistic is wrong, and far from it. I've made it. I made a painting at the, the church down in Donald that has a clearly evangelistic theme on that. But because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the Christian is free to make art on any subject, including evangelistic. Freely back to the legacy of arts, of course things happened at the Reformation. I think it's wrong to say that the reformers were all against the making of art. I showed that painting that Martin Luther commissioned. Um, but their concern was to take away art that removed from the word of God, that distracted away from, from the Bible. And we celebrate that tradition, of course, here as well. But perhaps inside of that, there was more misguided advice that Christians just shouldn't make art. I think it's more to do with the Enlightenment, like that. Um, uh, the argument between uh, imagination and, and reason. The arts are in the realm of the mysterious and the imaginative. And if our society is funded fundamentally on reason, it's very difficult to engage with art. People want to say, well, what's it about? What does it say? Tell me about it. And then artists say, well, what do you think it's about? And how do you respond to it? And well, what do you think? It's not a very reasonable thing to engage with art. I think that might be part of it. In terms of the church as well, um, we merit, and quite rightly, good, clear preaching. Um, so if you say to me afterwards, it was very clear, you probably mean that that was a good thing. And we don't often say in church, um, well, it was very imaginative. Perhaps because we, there's some sort of mystery attached to that as well. So in a similar way, perhaps, possibly, it's difficult for Christian artists who work in the world of the imaginative and the mysterious. And a whole host of other reasons on top of that. We don't have many Christian art schools anymore. And the arts aren't sympathetic towards faith. And so Suzanne isn't taught anymore. And the idea that, that God created all things certainly isn't taught anymore. Um, composition, colour, tone, these things are quite rare to find in art school too. There's a few thoughts. Yeah. Okay, maybe one more. Just time for one more quick one. Are you going to run an art class and then crash? Yeah, it could do. <laughs> I'm running an art class up in my studio, which starts in October, if anyone's interested in that. Thanks for the opportunity to promote that. <laughs> Choose the evenings, very reasonable price. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could do. We'll see how that goes down. That could be quite fun. Okay.